Well, pray with me one more time, and then we are returning today to our study of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to verse 22. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, doing what your people have always done for centuries and even really thousands of years, gathering around your word, trying to hear from you, and then in response to that, worshiping you with a pure and glad heart. Lord, I pray, Father, that your spirit would just be thick in this room while we're together today. There's so much that only he can do that we cannot do. He's the one who illumines. He's the one who opens our eyes to see the truth. He's the one who convicts of sins. He's the one who encourages. He's the one who blesses us with faith. Lord, to that end, we just invite your spirit to come. Father God, I also pray that you would be glorified in this service. I pray that everything that is said and sung would bring you great joy and pleasure. I pray that we would truly glorify you and magnify your name today. Finally, Lord, I pray that nothing that I say is out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. One of the great blessings of getting to be a pastor is, is that you get to intersect with people at, the, at these major moments of their lives, these crossroads in their lives, these really important moments. For example, I, I, it's such a blessing for me uh, to get to be the one praying with someone when they ask Christ into their lives. That, that moment of faith where they're converted, moved from uh, someone that is on their way to hell to someone who's on their way to heaven. Man, what a, what a great moment. What a blessing to get to be right there. It's also been a blessing to uh, get to, to uh, marry couples and baptize someone where they're, they're, they're drawing the line in the sand and publicly saying, okay, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm identifying myself with God's people. It's such a blessing to get to do that. Put my cards on the table. I love getting to do baby dedications. I love our kids. And it's just cool to kind of get to be a pastor and, and get to participate in those intersections of their lives. But also, and I'll say this is a blessing, it's a blessing also to get to walk with people when they're doubting, when they're tempted, and when they're suffering. For example, a number of years ago, a college student texted me and asked if we could have breakfast. And when we got together, he was just a little bit rattled that in one of his classes, one of his professors had made this case against the gospel. He didn't know how to answer it, and it just really genuinely rattled his faith. And he had to admit, you know, he, he said, and he said it was, it was weird, and he kind of felt guilty admitting it to his pastor, but he was genuinely doubting his faith for the first time in his life. I've also, uh, one day I had a friend reach out and ask for prayer, and he loved his wife, and they were in this tough season of their marriage. They had just had their third baby, and uh, his wife was just struggling to keep her head above water. Maybe you guys are a little bit older and had uh, kids years ago. You can remember those days, but man, she was just trying to keep diapers clean and people not, you know, sticking their fingers in light sockets, and she was just trying to make it, right? And in that, inevitably what happens, he kind of felt like, eh, she wasn't focused on me as much, and in the middle of all that, there was a young lady in his office that started flirting with him. And, and he came to me and just admitted, and he said, it just, I can't even believe I'm saying it, but for the first time in my marriage, I'm genuinely tempted. I've also, a number of years ago, had a friend reach out, and he, again, was wanting to meet, and when we grabbed lunch, he shared that he was laid off again. <laughs> 
he was in one of those industries that was boom or bust. And when it was booming, he was making a lot of money. And when it was busting, he was out. And this is the second time that he was out uh, in about four years. And the first time that uh, he had walked through this, I mean, this, he just struggled with a lot of shame in it. And some of the guys from the church had really come around him and just said, brother, you're doing a good job. This is what your industry is. And even though it was suffering, he walked through it in a really faithful way. And we got together, and, and he was feeling all those emotions again. And, and, and again, he was admitting just that he, he was really doubting if he wanted to turn to the Lord this time through all of it. Listen, we all experience those things, right? We all experience these moments where we doubt or we're tempted or where we have trials. And, and we need to be really clear on this point. The Bible doesn't say you're not going to have those things. The Bible does not teach that, okay, if you're converted or if you're even following the Lord faithfully, you're never going to have doubts, or you're never going to have temptations, or you're never going to have trials. The Bible is really clear that those things are going to come. However, what kind of hope do we have when we doubt? What are we supposed to believe when we're tempted? And further, what truths can we hold on to to help navigate those painful moments? We're in Hebrews, and if you're new with us, this is a long book. It's a deep book. It's just rich with all sorts of truths. We've been going very slow through it, and because it's so deep, we kind of take breaks in it. But we've titled this series of messages, Jesus is Better. And the reason why we've done that is the whole point of the book of Hebrews is, is it's written to people who are in those moments where they're doubting, they're tempted, uh, you know, they're suffering in different ways, and they're tempted to fall away from the faith. And God's solution in that moment is to remind us that Jesus is better. He's better than anything that uh, is maybe tempting you away. He's better than any doubts that you have. He's better than anything else in this world. And so the solution in those moments is to believe that Jesus is better. That's Hebrews as a whole. But more specifically here in Hebrews 9, 15 to 21, it teaches us first that our eternal hope is guaranteed by a will. And then number two that will is guaranteed by His blood. And as a result, we have genuine hope for eternity, and thus we can navigate any doubt, any temptation, or any trial based upon what Jesus has done with us. Let's look at these first verses, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 15 to 17, and we're going to be looking at how our eternal hope is guaranteed by a will. Follow along as I read Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death, uh, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Verse 15 is a continuation of the previous section. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Christ is the mediator. He's this cosmic go-between, between humanity and the divine. He, he's this arbitrator or this mediator who stands in between all of it. And he ushers in this better covenant, this better promise, this better contract, this better arrangement is all uh, brought about because of this better mediator. And so he's continuing this idea that Jesus is a mediator. And, and really the result of this new and better covenant that comes about from the fact that Jesus is a better mediator is the fact that we have this promise of eternal life. Because Christ is our mediator, we are promised or guaranteed this eternal life. And by comparison, he's comparing Christ to these Old Testament mediators. 
And specifically, he's talking about the Old Testament priest and the Old Testament sacrificial system. So in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it was gracious and good, but it was insufficient. We saw that it was lacking, it was temporary, but Jesus' covenant is permanent, and it's a promise, it's eternal. And further, the ground for these truths is the sufficiency of Jesus' bloody sacrificial death. What I mean is his atonement enables or it guarantees all these truths. You see, the called have the eternal promise based upon Jesus' atoning death on the cross. That's all we're going to talk about today. In a typical Hebrews fashion, we're going to take something like that and we're going to go really deep. We're going to do this deep dive on what does it mean that Jesus is our mediator. He's the one who's died for us. He's, he's made all these promises for us. And, and listen, all we're going to do is go deep on that. And there's not necessarily, you know, 10 points on how to be a better you know, employee or five points on how to communicate better with your wife. All this is is going deep into the gospel so that our minds can be blown, our our hearts can be just enlivened to the gospel, and then we can take all these truths and then apply it to all our doubts, temptations, and trials. You see, when we're there, we're to remember that Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant. You see, again, this mediator is this go-between. He arbitrates between these two parties, between humanity who is sinful on one end, God who is holy on the other, and Jesus brings it all together. Jesus is this bridge in between, right? Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. He becomes this bridge linking uh, this chasm. He mediates, and further, uh, what he then creates is new and a better arrangement. You see, in ways, uh, the, the old arrangement was insufficient and it was temporal. And in those ways that it was insufficient and temporal, with Christ as the mediator, it's now permanent and eternal. It's sufficient, You see, of course, sin is the issue in both of those. Therefore, through Jesus as our mediator, our sin problem is solved, and it's solved for eternity. Meaning the sins that you commit today, or the sins that you committed in the past, or the sins even that you commit decades from now, they've been covered by the blood of Christ. That's what it means that Jesus is our mediator, that it's eternal. You see, he doesn't have to come back again on this next day of atonement, making more and more and more and more sacrifices. His was once for all. And further, it wasn't just eternal, it was complete. Meaning compared to the Old Testament, it wasn't just dealing with these outer sins, it was dealing with what was inside. And and let's be honest, when you sin, when something comes out on the outside, you can trace it back to what you were thinking and what you were feeling, right? Right? Like that's really what drives all that. What's going on the inside leads to what comes out on the outside. And Jesus deals with the outside as well as the inside. Jesus covers all of it. That's only the beginning of what we're stepping into with Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, we are called to receive uh, an, an eternal inheritance. He mentions in verse 15, the called. Who are the called? Why is that thrown in there? What he's doing is he's restricting that eternal inheritance. Not everyone receives the eternal inheritance, right? There's people who reject this, who don't have faith in this, right? He's talking about these called ones. They're the ones who have the eternal inheritance. Jesus' mediating work is limited, if you will, to the, uh, to the called. His atonement is limited to this group. His atonement is not unlimited, meaning that, okay, it applies to everyone. I mean, everyone has this eternal inheritance, right? We know that can't be true. It's limited to the called. But who are the called? Well, they're not a nation or an ethnic group or a class of people. That's not who the called are. 
Rather, they're the ones that God has taken the initiative to graciously pursue and redeem. The best passage on this in the scriptures is in Romans 8. Let me read Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this means that God's call is effective. It accomplishes what it intends to accomplish. So another way of saying this is when he calls, he redeems. When he calls somebody out, when he convicts someone of their sin, and they believe in Christ, they receive this inheritance. So when he calls, he redeems. Okay, what's redeemed? The, the, the word here that he uses in verse 15 is that he redeems the called. Well, who, what, what is redeems? Well, this is just his word for salvation as a whole, but it, but it has some specific meanings here. You see, Jesus' atonement reclaims the, uh, the, the called ones. Those, uh, the, it's through the payment of Jesus' atonement that the called are redeemed. So his blood buys or rescues the redeemed. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What this means is is when we deserve judgment, he gave us mercy. But when we deserve the law, he gave us grace. That's who, those are the ones that are redeemed. Ultimately, this means that he gave them the promise of eternal life. He gave them this promise, eternal inheritance. My last question for this passage is, what in the world is the eternal inheritance? Okay, that's who the called are. That's what it means to be redeemed. But okay, if you're called and you're redeemed, what is this eternal inheritance that he's talking about? Well, I think the best way to understand the eternal inheritance is it's this eternal relationship with God. This requires, uh, of course, us moving from this category of being guilty legally before the Lord to moving to this new category of legally being innocent before the Lord. And again, we know that this is by God's grace. It's not us earning a way up to God. It's God covering us with his sacrificial blood. It's God paying that payment for us. And so it moves us from one category to another. We move from enemies of God to beloved children of God. And when we're there, we receive this inheritance. We receive this relationship with him, right? And I think it's really important for us to understand redemption and this relationship in this way and this inheritance where it begins, but it carries on into eternity. So it's not just something you're going to have in eternity. It's something that you experience right now, right? Now, I recognize it's going to get better in eternity. Okay, let's be clear on that. But we also get taste of it here, right? We get to experience dwelling with God here. And one of the great tastes of eternity here is that we're assured of eternity, We're guaranteed it's a promise that he makes to us. So in those moments where we're doubting or we're struggling, we know that that's coming. Well, again, the thing that's coming is dwelling with God. Uh, Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the great hope. That's the eternal inheritance of being with God. And that's consistent with the entire story of Scripture, right? Like if you think back in your mind to the Garden of Eden, what was so great about the garden? It wasn't the rivers, it wasn't the fruit, it wasn't the grass. They were with God, walking with God, talking with God. What's the great hope and revelation at the other end of the Bible? 
It's dwelling with God. And then you see it all throughout the Old Testament with the, the tabernacle and then the temple. And then God himself incarnates himself and walks with us and talks with us. So being with God, that's where joy is found. That's our great hope. Being with him and experiencing the joy of his kingdom, that's our hope. That's the gift that he promises. That's our inheritance. And it will be forever. It's an eternal inheritance. But he goes further, and I know we're still in verse 15. But he gives us the ground for the inheritance or, or the reason why we can have confidence that all of those things will come about. You see, Jesus' death redeems the called from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death is the payment for our inheritance. Maybe a way to think of this is that uh, the cross is, this, is the principal paying the policy that ensures the death benefit. That's what's going on here in this moment. It's pain, this thing. You see, we gain eternal life with God because Jesus died, redeeming us from the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he doesn't die for us to have the opportunity to be redeemed. Rather, he, his death accomplishes redemption for the called. He, he graciously grants them redemption. So our redemption as the called is gained through his death. And this means that his death pays for our sins, past, present, and future. It covers all of them. We've heard that other places, right? All that's good news. And if that doesn't stir your affections, you're the problem, okay? Let's be clear. All those things are glorious truths. I've cited Ephesians and Romans. Those things are all over the place. But what the author of Hebrews does here is he does kind of a unique twist. And it's, it's, very, it's a very Hebrews move. What he does here is he takes this one term and he kind of draws out related meanings, but two kind of different but related meanings here. And I don't want to bore you too much with the Greek here. But there's a Greek term, diatheke. And what he does here in verse 15 is it's probably translated in your version as covenant. So when you see the word covenant in verse 15, that's the Greek term behind it. However, it's the same term in 16 and 17. And what most translations do, and this is the correct way to translate it, is will. So it's covenant up here, but it's will here. It's just a range of meanings that that word could do. But he's trying to make a point, and it's kind of a unique point, and I think it's a really genius point. He says, he starts talking about a will. Now, when he says will, we have an English understanding, like an, like an inner desire. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that, that legal document that outlines a person's wishes for their belongings when they die. That's a will, right? And that's what he's talking about here. He starts talking about a will. Now, the technical term for an author of a will is a testator. This is one who makes a will, and that person needs to die before the will is executed. Okay? Are, are, you, are you with me? I mean, this is kind of common how wills work, right? A person makes a will. You know, I've got a, I'm trying to think of something ridiculous that I have, but I don't know. I, I don't have anything good, okay? My poor kids, okay? <laughs> Trying to think of something ridiculous, but when that person decides or they want their things to go, then they pass away, then all those things can happen, right? So when that person's still alive, you know, they don't get the creepy clown doll or whatever. I, I don't know. I, okay. Uh, the will, for a will to go into place, the person needs to pass away. That's his point here, okay? So what he's saying here is the stipulations of that legal contract won't take effect until the author of the will dies. Now, the point of this verse is about the importance of Jesus' death in this process. So his promises, he promises us an inheritance in his will, but it's triggered upon his death. Do you see that? So he's made these promises, but they don't come about until he dies. Okay, great. All theory 
How does that apply to us today? What are the implications of all that for us today? Here's where this becomes really glorious and really, really beautiful, I think. His death triggers his will, which means our eternal inheritance is guaranteed if he died. All of this is guaranteed if he died. Mark 14, 24 says, and he said, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So his blood establishes his covenant promises. So, so he made this will to give us this inheritance of eternal life. And then he died. And then it triggers all the benefits of that will. So the result is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, uh, which says, For you know the, gra- the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that a glorious picture? You had this divine heavenly father, the richest of all beings, created this will for you, this glorious eternal inheritance. You're the one in poverty. I'm the one in poverty. And then he dies. And then we have access to all of it. All of his riches come as a result of him dying. He gave us something better than financial security. He gave us something better than money to build rockets with or electric cars with. He gave us something better than anything this world has to offer. He gave us an eternity without death, without disease, and heavenly bodies, all in the presence of God, experiencing the abundant life of his kingdom. That's what was in his will. That's what is his eternal promise. That's the inheritance that he guarantees to you. Further, whenever you doubt it all, whenever you're tempted to live uh, not according to the kingdom of God, or whenever you're overwhelmed with the circumstances of life, you only have to believe again that Jesus died. Because if you believe there was a man here named Jesus and that he died, then you believe everything that he died for is guaranteed. All you have to do is to believe again in his death and that his death guaranteed it all. If Jesus died on the cross, then your glorious inheritance is assured. That's the good news of this passage. Hebrews 9, 15 to 17 teaches us that our eternal hope is guaranteed by his will. But then he makes one more point. This point is going to go a little bit faster. But he makes one more point just to solidify all these glorious guarantees. He says the will is guaranteed by his blood. Look with me at verses 18 to 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded to you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So verses 18 to 22 support verses 15 to 17 by making a comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. Here's the point these verses make. The old covenant promises were inaugurated or they were instituted or they began or they set in motion through the blood sacrifices. 
Therefore, what that means is, is forgiveness of sin requires a blood sacrifice. As a result, the eternal inheritance that was promised in the will in the new covenant all comes through the shedding of blood. He connects all these things together. So these verses reference back to uh, Exodus chapter 24. That, that's this famous passage that talks about the day of atonement. Now, like, like the, uh, previously in Hebrews 9, there's some distinctions between Hebrews 9 and Exodus 24. There's four key ones, and I want to outline them here. Number one, Hebrews mentions bulls while Exodus only mentions goats. Number two, in Hebrews, the blood is mixed with water. However, in Exodus uh, 24, it's just, it just speaks of the blood. Number three, Hebrews names the instruments of scarlet wool and the hyssop branch, but they aren't mentioned in Exodus. Then the number four, Hebrews mentions the scroll was sprinkled with blood, but it wasn't, it wasn't mentioned that way in Exodus. Now, there's a lot of speculation on why these distinctions are there. We kind of dove a little bit deeper uh, in some of these distinctions two weeks ago. But, but really, all of that drives, and it doesn't change the main point. And the main point is that the sacrificial process, it was a good and glorious event, but it was a bloody event. That's what was going on in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And the conclusion of this section is in verse 22. Look, look again at verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the point. So according to God's economy, forgiveness of sin requires a blood sacrifice. For example, in Leviticus 17, 11, we read, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is in the blood that makes atonement for life. So if you think back to the sweep of the scriptures, at the fall, blood was required. At the tabernacle and in the temple, blood was required. And then when we go ahead into the New Testament, blood was required on the cross. Once the blood sacrifices were made, then forgiveness was granted. I don't want to belabor the point here, but what he's driving at is, is that our eternal inheritance of the new covenant that, that promised in the will, it comes through the shedding of blood. And in that, that actually becomes one more proof when we're doubting the gospel, when we're tempted to abandon the gospel, when, when we're suffering and we're struggling to believe the gospel. This then becomes one more proof. You see, if Jesus' blood was shed, then the promised inheritance of our will is guaranteed. So in the same way, I'm struggling to believe, well, if he died, it's all guaranteed. If his blood was shed, that will is guaranteed. So as a result, we shouldn't fall away, but remain faithful. As a result, we, we are to believe those, uh, that those temptations will lead us away from the inheritance and not towards the inheritance and happiness and joy. As a result, we can make it through any suffering knowing that something more glorious awaits on the other side of it. Romans 3.25 says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That verse in Romans is, is similar to our passage in Hebrews 9 in the, that it explains the work of God, the sacrificial atoning work of God, that he died for our sins. But Romans goes one step further in teaching us the how. How do we engage and participate in that inheritance? How do we receive that? And what it says there is it's through faith. It's not entrusting your own good works. 
It's not, okay, God, you're holy. I'm going to try to be holy so I can, that I can be in your presence. Or I'm maybe just going to try to be better than this other guy, and maybe that's good enough. It's saying, no, someone was good enough for me. I'm never going to be good enough, but he was. And what are you believing on how you can get to the Lord? Are you believing that you can be good enough or that he was already good enough for you? You see, when we believe in the guaranteed will and the blood of Jesus for your salvation, you are saved. This is a call to believe in him. Is he calling you today? Is he calling you to believe in him? Is he beginning to open your eyes to a better way to live your life? Is he, is he calling you to, to faith and all of a sudden where you doubted, you're beginning to believe this is beginning to make sense? Listen, don't waste this morning. If you're here today, God's brought you here to do work in your heart. Don't, don't roll your eyes and just slip past this moment. If he's calling you today, get right with him today. Be reconciled with him today. Be at peace with him today. He's accomplished this for you. And if he's calling you, he's calling you to believe in his will and in his blood for the eternal inheritance. Listen, if God's calling you today, when we begin singing, just slip to the back. One of our pastors and elders will be there. They'd love to just talk with you, pray for you, answer any questions that you have. But if he's calling you today, don't rush past that. Receive what he's calling you to. Are you already one of the called ones? If so, he's still calling you uh, to faith in the midst of your doubts and in the midst of your temptations and in the midst of your sufferings. He's still calling you to trust him. I love Philippians 1.6. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, he accomplishes what he calls you to. If he's called you to something, he's going to accomplish it for you. What that means is, is, is that when you struggle with doubts or temptations or trials, he's not calling you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. He's saying that I'm with you, I'm for you, I've accomplished these things for you. He's calling you to just keep believing in his will, keep believing in his blood sacrifice for you. He's calling you to believe again. You see, when we struggle with doubts, we're to believe that uh, he has guaranteed the promises of his will. You see, when we struggle with temptations, we're called uh, to believe that we, are, uh, that we are secured for something better with his blood. You see, when we struggle with just the twists and turns of this life and we're overwhelmed, we're called to continue trusting in his blood that then triggers all that eternal inheritance and all that hope that comes that, he, that we can navigate through those trials with him, that he's going to carry us through. He's going to complete his work. Are you one of the called ones? Which means that you're, if you are one, it means you're one of the, the ones who is guaranteed an eternal inheritance. Isn't that good news? No matter what trial comes, no matter what doubt you face, no matter what temptation calls you away, that is better than anything this world has to offer. Thomas Cramner was a man who had doubts. He certainly experienced temptations, and he walked uh, through some painful trials. If you're not a church history nerd, then you're not one of my people. But if you're not a church history nerd, you have no idea who Cram Thomas Cramner is. He was one of the, he was probably the key theologian for the, uh, the English Reformation. So think King Henry VIII and all of his wives. So Thomas Cramner was kind of the theologian behind all that. That, that kind of made the theological case for why King Henry could annul his marriage. And then in place of that, leave the Catholic Church and then establish the Church of England, which is Anglicanism or Episcopalianism today. 
And he gave this theological ground where the monarch should be over the church. And so even today, the British monarchy is over the Church of England, right? So Cramner is kind of the, is the theologian making all these theologian, uh, theological cases for all this. Cramner was very complex. He was a very complex man. He had wonderful virtues, okay? He, he wrote um, uh, these devotional poems and songs that are still used by Episcopalians today. They're beautiful. I use them periodically in my devotional time. So there's great things uh, that he did. However, I would argue that what Cramner did is he twisted his theology to advance a lot of his political purposes, okay? He was a complex guy, and I think there's a very complex founding of that church that I think sadly still bleeds into how it operates today. When the king died, you ever heard of his daughter, Bloody Mary, who becomes the next queen? Bloody Mary is a good title for her. She was bloody. She killed over 300 Protestant ministers. Her goal was she wanted to bring England back under the Catholic Church. And so she just kind of laid out where she was going. And people, all the ministers had to get in line with that. And she ended up uh, killing, again, over 300 of them. And, and Cramner was in her bullseye. And she had him arrested. And, and she, wanted him to, uh, she wanted him to change or, or she was going uh, to execute him. And, and so what she did is uh, she, she really uh, pressured him a lot. And, and she put him in jail. And she made him watch the burning of, of two Protestant ministers, Latimer and Ridley. He was suffering in jail. He was watching all of this. This is a terrifying moment. In all this, watching those horrible deaths, I would argue that he struggled with fear and this doubt and the, and the temptation to abandon his biblical convictions. The technical term of what he did next is he recanted. He recanted all of his gospel convictions. Literally, and this wasn't just a, a whisper he said to someone. He put hand to pen and pen to paper, and he wrote out all these things that he was now denying. He abandoned all these gospel convictions of faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. And he started embracing, okay, well, yeah, well, we need to keep good works and, and carry the sacraments, and then we can get in heaven. He abandoned all these glorious biblical gospel convictions. And further, he didn't do it one time. He did it five times. Five recant, uh, recantations of all of his Protestant beliefs. But it wasn't enough for Bloody Mary. She wanted one more thing, a sixth one, a sixth recantation. And, but on this one, she wanted him to preach a sermon denying all those Protestant beliefs. Now, she was smart. She made him write it all out, okay? Manuscript this thing, show it to me, we'll approve it, and then we want you to get up and preach this sermon. Cramner had succumbed to his doubts and his temptations and his trials, However, during his sermon, the one who had begun a good work in him proved faithful. The one who died with a will, the one who shed his blood for Cramner's eternal inheritance, he came calling in the middle of that sermon. Cramner's eyes were open. His heart was filled with the conviction of his faith, and he renounced his previous recantations. Now, the way he did it was very powerful. In the middle of his sermon, he looked down and he saw his hand, this hand that had picked up those pins and had denied Christ. And there was something about seeing his hand, what his hand had done, what he had done. It, it just cut him to the core. And in that moment, he renounced all of what he had previously said. And he, and he said he wanted to put his hand in the fire first. I'd rather die than deny the gospel. The congregation was incensed and ripped him out of the pulpit, took him straight outside, built the fire, and burned him to death. 
And he was true to his word. He stuck his hand in the, the heat of the fire. And he said, that unworthy hand. That's how that man died. In that moment, he found something better than life itself. In, in that moment, he found something better that he was able to overcome his doubts, overcome his temptations, overcome all his sufferings, and to believe again in the gospel. He found hope in Jesus' blood-bought will. Jesus guaranteed that man an eternal inheritance through his bloody sacrifice, and that was better than any doubt and any temptation and any trial that he had ever walked through to the degree that he could joyfully put his hand in the fire and be burned to death. That's the type of relationship with God that I want. That's the type of commitment to the Lord that I want. That's where joy is found. That's the type of life that God is calling us to. Let me close with D.A. Carson's words. Long have I pondered the pain of the cross. Wood soaked in blood and washed with tears. Drenched in sweat whips, cruel nails. Crown of thorns, countless cost. Somehow his death is both promise and threat. Cascades of suffering and love shrink my pride. Silent I'm hushed by his spear-driven side. Long have I pondered the Christ of the cross. Gone is the boasting when I'm next to him. Loving the rebel, redeeming the lost, Jesus' pure goodness exposes my sin. Self is cut down by the triumph of his grace. Christ's bloody cross is the hope of our race. Friends, no matter the doubt, no matter the temptation, and no matter the suffering, find hope in Jesus' blood-bought guarantee. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just a deep dive into the gospel. A deep look at these glorious truths that you accomplished on the cross for us. This complex look at a, a will and a guarantee and blood and death and sacrifice. But at the end of it all, we confess that what you offer us, what you give us, is better than anything in this world. Lord, there's no way for myself or any of us to know everything that's going on in everyone's heart in this room. But Lord, no matter the temptation or the trial or the doubt, I pray that right now, that gospel that inheritance would be better than anything that is calling us to fall away. That, that, that we would believe again in the glories of the gospel. That we would believe again and have great hope in our eternal inheritance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.